and welcome to the fourth episode of the Herbert Smith Freehills Private Wealth and Charities podcast series. In these podcasts, we discuss relevant cases and trends in the private wealth and charities sphere. My name is Richard Norwich and I'm a partner specialising in private wealth and trust disputes as well as charities matters. Today I'm joined by two colleagues, Michael Hunt, a senior associate specialising in tax advice and disputes, and Jade Hu, an associate in our private wealth and charities team. So Jade, what are we looking at today? Today we're going to be talking about applying to register a charity. More specifically, we're going to be discussing the requirements for charitable status, some common issues faced when applying to register, and we'll also look at some common pitfalls and sharing some top tips in relation to such applications. So this podcast will be a general introduction to some of the issues we often encounter in our practice, and we'll dive deeper into some of these issues in future podcasts. So to kick us off, Richard, Michael, could you please explain a little bit more about the requirements for charitable status? Sure. So a good place to start is with considering the requirements for charitable status, as the legal definition of charity doesn't necessarily overlap with the common use of the word. So to be considered a charity under the Charities Act 2011, the institution must be established for exclusively charitable purposes and must be subject to the control of the English High Court. The requirement the institution is subject to the control of the High Court is essentially a requirement to have some kind of connection to England and Wales. Now, this could be through the governing document stating that the institution in question is governed by the law of England and Wales. But there there are a couple of other options too. For example, the High Court's jurisdiction could also be established if the institution has its central administration or most of its property in England and Wales, or that most of its charity trustees live in England and Wales. So that deals with the second bit, the subject to the control of the High Court. What about the first bit, Michael, uh, charitable purposes? Well, charitable purposes are defined in the statute and the Charities Act 2011 includes 12 specific charitable purposes. These include what were formerly the four heads of charitable purpose, including relief of poverty, advancement of education and advancement of religion, but also other charitable purposes that have been recognised over the years and are now in the statute, including advancement of environmental protection and advancement of human rights, to name just a couple. The 13th charitable purpose is a broadly defined catch-all for any purpose that is analogous to or within the spirit of the 12 defined charitable purposes. As well as meeting one of the 13 descriptions of a charitable purpose, the purpose is also required by the Act to be for the public benefit. It's not always easy to know what this test means as public benefit isn't defined in the legislation. There's no presumption that a purpose that falls within the 13 descriptions in the legislation is necessarily for the public benefit. It's helpful to break this public benefit test into two elements, benefit aspect and the public aspect. What's necessary in measuring benefit is being able to identify and describe how the charity's purpose is beneficial, whether or not it can be clearly measured. The benefit must be capable of being proved by evidence where necessary and cannot be based on personal views. In many cases, it's very clear that there is a benefit from the activities of the charity. For example, relieving those who are in need because they're victims of a disaster such as a famine. In other cases, it's less clear. So, for example, we've had several experiences of registering 
charities which are for the advancement of, for example, health, including mental health, the arts and education. In those cases, the Charity Commission is more likely to require evidence, including, for example, expert evidence of the merit or value of the activities of the charity. And in many cases, the Charity Commission guidance is very helpful in these cases. So, for example, Charity Commission on Museums and the Arts is very helpful in artistic charities and what the Charity Commission is looking for to demonstrate artistic merit. Another element of the benefit aspect of the public benefit test is that any detriment or harm that might result from the activities of the charity doesn't outweigh the benefits. So that kind of detriment or harm may be, for example, harm to the environment, but it also could be harm to the very people who you're seeking to help. And so one of the examples we have is a charity that was set up for the relief of those who are in need because they're refugees or asylum seekers. And it was necessary to demonstrate that the trustees have considered the risks, including safeguarding risks, to the intended beneficiaries of the charity and making sure that these don't outweigh the benefits that they're likely to receive from the activities. Thanks, Michael. It's important to give consideration to the purpose of the charity and any possible detriment or harm that may arise out of it before applying to register the charity. The second element of the public benefit test is this public aspect, and that's more straightforward. It requires the public in general or a sufficient section of the public to benefit from the charity. Now, the public in general is quite self-explanatory and applies to charities whose purpose is not limited to people with a particular need or people who satisfy certain criteria. However, a sufficient section of the public, that, that's also quite broad because there's no minimum number of people. But that section of the public that benefits needs to be sufficient in relation to the specific purpose. So a specific section of the public can be determined based on a geographic area, based on a particular charitable need, or by reference to protected characteristics like age, race or religion. There are of course limits to this which are explained well in the Charity Commission's guidance. The last point on the public benefit test is that it requires any personal benefit arising out of the charity to be no more than incidental. In other words, any personal or private benefit must be a necessary byproduct of the charitable activities. Now, this issue often arises when we're considering charities which are connected with commercial organisations or non-charities. For example, where a charity is set up by a non-charity or is set up to use a non-charity's branding or resources. There are often reputational benefits for the non-charity by being closely associated with a charity. And beyond that, we often look at the terms of any service or resource sharing arrangements between them to check not only that those terms are in the charity's best interests, but also whether the trustees have satisfied themselves that any fees they are paying the non-charity are market standard or indeed less. We also look for any overlap in their activities and whether there's a risk that the charity's work somehow contributes more directly to the non-charity's business beyond merely enhancing the non-charity's reputation from a CSR perspective. Let me give you an example of that. So in one matter, we consider a charity that invested in potentially the same market as the non-charity. And there was a potential risk or perception, at least, that the charity was effectively investing in and developing businesses for the non-charity to invest in. 
Obviously, this was not the intention of the charity or how it operates, but it was important that it nonetheless had in place formal arrangements with the non-charity to help ensure that the risk was being managed. Now that we've got an understanding of the requirements of charitable status, we can dig into some of the issues around actually registering the charity. So, Jade, is there anything in particular that you've come across in your work with charities? Yes, thank you, Richard. As some of our listeners will surely know, charities need to be registered with the Charity Commission using an online application form. Assuming the charitable purpose and public benefit are established, a common issue we have seen come up quite often when registering a charity is ensuring the objects are clearly defined in the application. The objects are essentially a statement of purpose and they must fall within the descriptions of charitable purposes as defined in legislation and discussed earlier. So with this in mind, our preferred approach is that objects are short, maybe only a couple of sentences, and clearly identifiable with the charitable purposes set out in the Charities Act. I completely agree with Jade. Correctly defining your objects is important for a number of reasons. From a practical perspective, if the objects are well-defined and identifiable with legally recognised charitable purposes, the Charity Commission is more likely to accept them without requiring amendments which is more likely to avoid delays in the application process. Secondly, it's important to strike a balance between the objects not being too broad and the objects being too narrow. If the objects are vague or ambiguous, the Commission may query the language and what the purpose of the charity is. However, if they're too narrow, it may restrict the charity from doing what it's set out to do, particularly in future. Examples we've seen of objects being too narrow at first is when they've been drafted as a list of activities that the charity undertakes, such as running training sessions or workshops for certain classes of beneficiaries who are specified or in certain specified jurisdictions or countries. Objects are generally supposed to govern what the charity's activities achieve rather than the activities that it undertakes. Drafting the objects to specify the activities may be appropriate if the charity is set up to carry certain activities exclusively, but in most cases in our experience, charities would prefer the option of changing or expanding their activities in the future in order, for example, to meet changing needs or circumstances. Therefore, when drafting these objects, it's worth considering whether the wording is sufficiently broad to allow the charity's operations from day one and also to allow for organic growth in future. That's a great point, Michael. And the need to consider what activities the charity will carry out from day one and may carry out in the future also ties in with the next common pitfall, which is ensuring the charity has all the requisite systems and controls in place to carry out their activities from the outset. So we sometimes find when we start to drill into the detail of a charity's operations, that they don't always have the relevant written policies in place, even though they may have been following an appropriate procedure in practice. Now, it's very important that charities have formal written policies in place that they can look to when running the charity or dealing with issues that arise. For example, as mentioned earlier, if the charity works with children or vulnerable people, it should ensure that it has a safeguarding policy in place from the outset. The Charity Commission may ask to see this when considering the application to register, and not having one ready to hand could hold up the application. Trustees should also be prepared for the role they're taking on and ready to carry out that purpose from the outset. For example, we sometimes see charities appoint individuals who have never been a charity trustee before or who are based overseas. Now, this is acceptable, but trustees who may not be familiar with their legal duties in respect of the administration, governance and management of the charity need to ensure they are familiar with them when they start. 
So a common example of mismanagement, for instance, is failing to submit annual accounts either on time or at all. And this can lead to an investigation by the Charity Commission into the charity trustees. So for new trustees who wish to familiarise themselves with their legal duties, an excellent starting point is the Charity Commission's guidance. Now these are available online and cover an extensive range of topics, including conflicts, financial management and fundraising. The Commission expects trustees to have read them and to comply with them, so they really are essential reading. Another common issue we've seen is ensuring there are no conflicts of interest when appointing the first trustees, uh, whether they be actual conflicts or perceived. This commonly arises where the charity is established by or connected to a non-charity. It's common to have personnel from the non-charity appointed to the trustee board to bring their expertise to the work of the charity. However, appointing executives from the commercial entity as charity trustees can create actual or perceived conflicts of interest. Charity trustees owe fiduciary duties to the charity, which include a duty of undivided loyalty to the charity and a duty to act in the charity's best interests. There is a risk these duties could be compromised if, for example, the charity trustee is also a director of the non-charity and therefore owes the same fiduciary duties to the non-charity. Or the charity trustee obtains confidential information of the charity, which might benefit the non-charity that the trustee also works for. Having said that, this doesn't preclude executives from a connected non-charity becoming charity trustees, and we have seen many examples of effective and engaged trustee boards with a healthy proportion of trustees who are associated with a connected non-charity. However, it's important that the majority of the trustees are independent of the connected non-charity. This allows decisions to be made in circumstances where the trustees affiliated with the non-charity are conflicted and cannot participate in the decision-making. Trustees must also be aware of the conflicts and manage them. It's important to ensure that a conflicts of interest policy is established and systems are in place to identify conflicts and record how they're managed to demonstrate that decisions are taken only in the best interests of the charity. So that's a, a bit of a canter through the common issues that arise when applying to register a charity. Before we wrap up, Michael, any top tips? Well, the most important thing is for the trustees to be prepared and have a clear vision and plan before setting up the charity. As we discussed, careful consideration of the objects is essential. It's also worth considering exactly what the charity is going to be doing on day one and the practical steps that will need to be taken in order to facilitate the charity's operations. This includes having appropriate policies and procedures in place, as Jade mentioned earlier, and ensuring the trustees understand the role they're taking on. It's also important to bear in mind the impact of the application process on the charity's tax status. A charity will not be recognised as a charity for tax purposes until it's first registered with the Charity Commission, and you can't backdate gift aid to the date before the charity has been recognised by HMRC. So therefore, it's particularly important if the charity is looking to fundraise early to make sure that they get the application right the first time and avoid delays and potentially losing valuable tax relief for donors. And it's important to remember that registering a charity with the Charity Commission can be a lengthy process. In the last financial year, the Commission received over 8,000 applications, so processing applications can take some time. The clearer the objects and the greater consideration given to any possible conflicts and potential harm, the greater the prospects of the application receiving approval without the need to go back and forth with the Charity Commission clarifying points. So in short, be prepared before applying. Thanks very much, Michael and Jade. On that note, we will conclude our fourth podcast.
We hope you found it of interest. If you'd like more information about charities and private wealth and our views on some interesting recent cases from this sphere, please head to the blog. That's the HSF Private Wealth and Trust Disputes blog, which you'll find at hsfnotes.com slash pwtd. That link is also in the podcast notes. And if you're interested in the type of matters our private wealth and charities practice may be able to assist you with, uh, please check out our new website. You'll find the link in the podcast notes. And we'll be back soon with further private wealth and charities podcasts.